You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. All right. Hey, folks. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. We're here. We're- I'm, yeah, and uh, I'm Ben Sternkey. I'm one of the co-founders of Gravity Leadership, and I'm here with my co-pastor, co Host, co-founder. Um, there's a lot of things we we do together. Matt. Collaborator, collaborator, co-conspirator. Uh, Matt Teppy. Yep. Good morning, Ben. Yeah. Good to see you guys. Um, and hey, the, this morning we're also well, we're recording this in the morning. I don't know when you're listening to it, but uh, we're uh, we're joined this morning with, uh, by Hannah Anderson, um, all the way from Roanoke, Virginia. Did I get that right, Hannah? Yes, oh, no. you did. Okay. All right, very good. Did I did I did I pronounce Anderson correctly? Did I pronounce Hannah correctly? <laughs> well, yes. Did you yeah. pronounce it with an O or an E? Oh uh, yeah. In the yeah. last yeah. syllable. So Son. did That's you say Anderson? Anderson. Or Anderson. Anderson. Yeah, yeah, I didn't I think I was pretty ambiguous uh, with my last <laughs> syllable there. So I didn't want to point it out. <laughs> I mean, but you asked. You yeah, right. You brought this up. You brought Let this upon yourself. That be the end of your ambiguous syllables, young man. Yeah, all right. I gotta I gotta I gotta check this Tighten out. Tighten it up. This mm-hmm. is a this is a podcast. Yes. So uh Hannah, thanks for being with us. Yes. It's really good to have you. Um I want to talk about why we're having Hannah on the podcast in just a little bit, but Hannah, um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, um, let us just uh, do do a little introduction of yourself. Where do you live? What do you get up to in a day? Um, right. What, so, what, what's like, your life all about? Like you said, I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, which is in the southwest corner of Virginia. Um, it's in the Blue Ridge Mountains, which is a sub-chain of the Appalachian Mountains, so mm-hmm. um, that really informs a lot of the culture and the area that we live in. My husband's from this area originally. My husband, Nathan, grew up in a one stoplight county, oh, wow. like one stoplight in the county. In the whole county. And I think his high school, you know, had only a couple hundred 
folks. So hmm. uh, we came back here probably about seven years ago um, and settled in this area. He's a pastor and he was called back here to work with a small um, church. It's Baptist, um, but its roots are much more community focused hmm. um, than even denominationally focused. So we have three children and my days are spent living in um, community with the folks here and working hmm. in the church with Nathan, taking care of my kids. And as if that weren't sufficient, <laughs> I also right. have to scratch this itch to write and uh. talk about, um, you know, a lot of the movements and things that are we're processing as American Christians. And so uh. my books initially were written to women to fill a gap of what I felt was um, just not a lot of good books hmm. written for women in the church. Hmm. And so the first book, I kind of tackled the topic of image bearing and trying to find our identity in that rather than maybe gender roles or hmm. um, even cultural womanhood. And then since then, I've written about um, humility. And then my latest book is about finding goodness in the world through the process of discernment. Hmm. So I just get up to a whole lot of stuff and probably yeah. more than I should, but that's where <laughs> I am and what my days are taken up with. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's your writing uh, that caught that caught my attention, uh, Hannah, um, on Twitter, actually. Um, and that's, that's kind of the focus of our um, uh, podcast today, just the episode we want to focus on. Um, that you had responded, there's a, a Christian Twitter dude uh, who, uh, <laughs> who, who proclaimed... There's always a Christian, always Twitter, a Christian dude. Twitter dude. Twitter dude. <laughs> um, who, who kind of, you know, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a trope yet, but talked about like one of the greatest idolatries of, you know, American Christians is the family, the idolatry of the family. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of these things that sort of, uh, I think, pastors in general sort of nod their heads at. Well, um, some people, it tweaks them a little bit. Well, no, that's what I was going right? to say. I think there's, right, so some some people are like, uh, amen, and other people are like, wait a second, I thought we were supposed to be focusing on the family. Back off, pagan. Yeah. Right? Like, isn't, doesn't, doesn't Jesus love the family? And um, your response to this, I thought was super interesting, Hannah, because it was uh, it was a nuanced, it was a Twitter thread. Uh, which I always I always say like Twitter threads I'm like just write a blog post. No, but anyway, I it's get, a 21st I get, century blog. I know, post, right? I know. It, it's uh, it's that that's the old man curmudgeon in me. <laughs> that's like just write a blog post. Just get on your life journal. It's and, the 90s and yep. write it up. No, so uh, but you posted this uh, thread which I uh, which edified me, even though it was a thread. Um, where <laughs> <laughs> there's there is hope for you, Ben. Yeah, yeah. I'm coming around. I'm coming around. Um, so anyway. Um, yeah, so the tweet said this, one of the most acceptable idolatries among evangelical Christians today is the idolatry of the family. And um, you just kind of went on this thread that I thought was so interesting because you nuanced kind of what we mean by family, and, and you found these, the, the actual idols that are behind that. Um, and so anyway, I, I just thought you parsed that really well. So I, I wanted to talk with you about that and say, like, when you think about this issue of the idolatry of the family— um, what do you think is typically meant by that, and and what do we actually need to be thinking about as we as we think about, I mean, doing what you do with your days, which is like I'm I'm bearing the image of God, I'm living out my vocation, but a lot of that is done with these these people, right? <laughs> that I'm related right. to, that are my family. Like how how like how do you think about that? Can you give us a little window into what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, well, the first thing I want to uh, say is you use the word that this is like becoming a trope, this idolatry mm. of the family, and I totally agree with that. But I think we need to take a moment to recognize how like five years ago, 
that was not the case. That's like true. we are in this space hmm. of massively rapid change in how we're talking and allowed to talk about the family. Um, you know, I started writing in context of gender and especially of Christian womanhood five, six, my, my book came out in 2014, was thinking about these things probably seven, eight years ago. Um, and you could not say to Christian women, you might be idolizing your family. Hmm. You know, like even the possibility of that being a trope. So I think hmm. there's been significant shift in just the last four to five years and even how we're allowed to talk about the family. So whether or not this statement is true is another question, but I think part of the confusion about definitions and what do you mean by this is just because we're only now allowed to even point this out. Why, yeah, yeah why weird. is that? So use the word shift. Others might use the word drift mm. in terms of, you know, so why is it, why are we, now permitted to talk about this where before we weren't? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a couple larger factors in play. One is just the, the change in conversation that's been brought about by the internet. I mean, you, you have the opportunity for lay people and, you know, just this kind of popularization of the conversation. So it's no longer being controlled by uh, pastors or parachurch ministries or, you know, ministries that are devoted to the family. You're never going to hear this kind of language from them. But now you've got this kind of uh, equalizing of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So you hear different voices coming into it, and they're beginning to say things that maybe wouldn't pass um, the filters of larger organizations. Mm -hmm. But also, I think um, the shift in our our ability to engage questions of sexuality that are happening larger outside of us in the broader conversation of the you know, of society, like our expression and our capacity to understand family and to say, no, we're for traditional marriage or no, this is okay. All is being revealed. Like the broader movements are forcing us to really look at the um, rhetoric that we've been using. Hmm. And um, I just think we can't escape that. And, and it's showing the conversations outside us are showing some of the weaknesses of the paradigms that yeah. we have had. Um, and, and not to say one paradigm, this is right, that's wrong, but it's really just revealing like they're inadequate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's really good. I think that's a, yeah, really cogent analysis of kind of why, why we even need to talk about this or why it's actually becoming okay to talk about yeah, it. Yeah. Why we can. Yeah. Yeah. Why we can talk about it. So what, um, what are some of these uh, what are some of these underlying issues that you see then um, that are being brought up, like the insufficient ways that we've had of talking about this? Uh, what do you mean by that? And what are you seeing? Yeah, well, a lot of this comes back to the context I live in and my own experience of being both in the church and tapped into broader American Christian conversations and the conversations that I'm seeing in my community. My community is a very intergenerational community. Um, our church will have three, if not four generations of family attending together. Um, also, it's a working class community. So a lot of the assumptions about what family looks like or what a traditional family looks like or a Christian family looks like doesn't really make sense here. So hmm. if you're accustomed to a middle class definition of the nuclear family where uh, father goes out to bring home the bacon and mother stays home to be domestic and the children, you know, Tom and whatever Susie are in their cute little church clothes. Like yeah. that doesn't make any sense in my context. Hmm. Um, 
we have massive unemployment among working class men. We have women who have more education than their husbands who are providing for the family. Mm. And so for me, part of what's revealing the inadequacy of the paradigms that we use in the church is that they only reflect a middle to upper class definition of nuclear family. And so when you go to argue in broader society, we're going to stand for conservative values or (laughs) we're going to stand for um, traditional marriage, you begin to see that there's a lot more packed into those definitions than Mm. just a biblical vision of family or flourishing um, in our communities. Mm. So maybe to put it in the most provocative way possible, Hannah, did you just say that like the conservative uh, understanding of the nuclear family is thoroughly cultural relative? Uh, I mean, one might do that. (laughs) So, so like what you're, what you're saying is all these, the multi-perspectival world we live in that enables like names, the water we swim in when we Mm. couldn't see it before helps us realize that Mm. it's not, the enemy isn't relativism. The the reality is, it, like, we all have this relative perspective that we universalize and project onto others. Right. And so then, so then, as a Christian, we have this choice. What do we do with that strange new realization, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and some of us feel under attacked by that, and so we defend and... And I would argue that's where I- idols come from. Um, like, we, we are reacting against perceived threat, and so we create yeah. an idol of something that's good in order to stave off the threat, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. or we have maybe, um, I think what you're advocating for, and uh, what we saw in your third is advocating for a better response to mm-hmm. this new, seeing this thing for the first time that's always mm. been there. Yeah, because I, I hear what you're, what you're saying there as... Um, like what what it's revealing is that which we've called biblical is actually uh very very cultural right that's <laughs> yes. kind of what you're saying upper like middle class even, white it, people into this thing that we think is just from the bible we've actually imported a lot of assumptions about what it means to be an upper upper middle class probably white right. family right mm-hmm. and the, and we've 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 inherited those things from the culture around us without yeah, we, realizing we, that they're cultural. They're not biblical. They're we, cultural. Yeah, we come by them honestly. It's not like we're yeah. looking right. to... We're not like we're looking to undermine sort of yeah. how Scripture would function right. in our lives. Can you yeah. say more about this phenomenon, Hannah? Right. And so I think we also reward the family formation that middle and upper class people um, already do naturally. So when we talk mm. about family values or we have family discipleship models within our churches, um, it's not just that our goals take a certain shape or that we identify the nuclear family or this kind of um, 1950s or conservative rendering of the, of the family as a Christian family, but we're also operating um, within our churches in ways that reward and enable people that are already doing that. Yeah. So if you look at demographics, the, the, if you look at the, the gap between church attendance, um, lower income uh, working class people are n- simply not in church as much as middle to upper class people are. And there's lots of reasons for that. But what ends up happening is we look around at our churches mm. that are populated by middle to upper class people and we see their families and we say, oh, this is what a Christian family looks like. And Hmm. so then we also create structures that reinforce that only those people 
can attain and be successful at. Um, and so it's something even as simple as like the su success sequence, right? Where there's this model that sociologists use where you finish your education, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, and that kind of sets you up for success in society. And that's great because, you know, there's a lot of factors that contribute to community formation um, that are threads that if you if you weave them this way, it's going to be very helpful to stabilizing your life. Mm. But the problem with that is that middle class people and upper class people are already on a track to do that. They already, it's not a choice they are making so much as a choice of their environment that is leading them that direction. Yeah. When you turn and you look at family formation in uh, lower class and working class communities, it's totally does not follow that sequence. And right. it's very tempting as Christians to say, well, there's your problem. That's why your families are not successful because you didn't follow what is essentially a middle to upper class process. Right. Um, and so we do have, you know, we really need to evaluate as Christians, what is Christian and what mm. is class-based when we're talking about mm. um, our vision of Christian family and our vision of yes. uh, what it would look like to be successful in these ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And what I, what I hear you saying is because it marginalizes other families that don't comport to sort of the, the cultural um, grooves that like upper white middle class people would just naturally align their lives with. Um, right. So, so it it does it does it does tend to then marginalize families who don't look like the norm, right? Mm -hmm. But then it also does some bad work for those of us who maybe do fit the norm, um, right? Right. Yeah. And that's <laughs> that's the next question I wanted to ask. In that in the Twitter thread, you you mentioned that like the deeper problem. One of the things you talk about is the deeper problem of family idolatry is that we have adopted a notion of what it means to be like a the success the success path or track or whatever whatever you called it um, we've adopted this notion of what it means to sort of be biblical or good as a family um, that actually we've inherited the, like secular notions of of what the family is supposed to do and so it actually traps us within something that you know we think is good but it's actually in many ways uh, killing us, and so you talked. You talked about how, like the the you know consumption, like family as a as a consuming place, a place of rest, a place of security, a place of safety, retreat, the romanticization of you know marriage and sex, all that kind of things. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. Like what mm. what is the underlying structure that we've inherited, you know, as as white, you know, middle class, upper mm -hmm. class families that is actually. Uh, something that needs to be deconstructed. That makes sense, right? And I think part of that question goes back to what is meant when people say, um, "Yes, the greatest idolization." You know, yeah. the American Church idolizes family. What do they mean by that? Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm going to give the benefit of doubt that those um, statements are made with serious concern for things that people are seeing happen within yes, the church. And for it's, sure. And it's things like, um, yes, the elevation of marriage over singleness, where mm -hmm. somehow your personhood is in question if you have not married at a certain time, especially for women. Yes. Um, it's the elevation of domestic life or childbearing. Like if you have not had a certain number of children by a certain time, then people are going to come up and, you know, ask you, when are you having your babies? And so that makes it hard for people who are infertile. Yes. So, so I understand that the impulse is we see 
elements of family being misused and yes. set as an artificial standard for other people. But to me, that's a symptom mm. of what we're hoping family will offer us and how we're using it in our lives. And so some of the things that I think we have to actually get under is, you know, a, a middle to upper class vision of family is fairly isolated mm. um, from the rest of the community. And so all of your fulfillment must come from yes. within these four walls. And so the reason you bear the burden of not being married is because we don't have a vision for extended family. So the, in reality, no person who is unmarried is single. You are a child of someone. You belong to family. But what skews that is we have... Um, co-opted uh, the word family to describe nuclear family. Right. So you only are in family if you are in a nuclear family, if you have been married and have children. Yes. And that's the only means by which you can feel attached in familial roles um, hmm. to other people. But but again, part of the reason why I recognize that as a, as a difference is because in my community, we are highly intergenerational. So when I go up to the school to pick up my kids, people are being, children are being picked up by every random relative that exists, yeah. you know, like, and because it's working class, people are juggling childcare and they have to rely on the extended family mm -hmm. network because they simply don't have the freedom and the luxury within their work either to have mom stay home or even to be able to leave work to go get the child. Right. So you'll see cousins or uncles or grandmas and, you know, You'll see dads, a lot of dads who maybe aren't working at the time, mm -hmm. taking on more of the childcare, and and that kind of sense of a broadening of the definition of family um, is one of the things that is a disconnect with the way um, upper middle to upper classes uh, churches talk about family, mm -hmm. and even the vision that's being brought down to the lower mm -hmm. class communities. Yeah, so one of the things one of the things that's underlying uh, th this whole thing of, you know, thinking about the idolatry of the family, one of the things that's underlying it is the fact that we have bought into the assumption predominantly that all of my sense of belonging to other people needs to or should take place within the nuclear family. And so if I'm an adult who's no longer part of my, my, my mom or dad's nuclear family, like mm -hmm. now there's no place for me to belong unless I get married and have kids. Yeah. Right? Right. And, we're, and we're isolated from each other. Which which right. exacerbates the problem. Yeah, and I, I wonder too, like how much that sort of the Jerry Maguire myth of of soulmates, like the you complete me myth of marriage, that mm. I right. that honestly uh, I don't hear Christians deconstructing nearly enough, right? Especially, right. I we, I just got off the phone with a f uh, couple friends who went to Christian college, and this is the predominant narrative they got at their Christian college, which is you know kind of all these jokes, ring before spring, and yeah. and all right. these kinds of things. But there's like this one person you got to find them, and then. When that person doesn't satisfy all of your deepest longings and needs, yeah. and your three kids are driving you nuts, and you never, you know what I mean, and yeah. like you're not, you're not happy with the nuclear family and this your soulmate, right, right, right. then then it's like, well, why do why do I even stay up. married, right, yeah. yeah, right, and and what's so devastating about that kind of romantic romanticized vision of marriage is that it falls heaviest on those at the bottom of the ladder. So um, middle to upper class people have um, buffers, you know, they have safety nets in the form right. of money and resources Netflix. and social capital. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a divorce, yeah. <laughs> a divorce is a really, really um, 
expensive thing, right? Mm, and, yeah. and living even in two households and maintaining how two households for your child to move back and forth from is yeah. a really, really expensive thing. But so the middle to upper class people maybe, maybe can afford a romantic vision of marriage. But when that trickles down to working class and lower class mm. people, here's what happens. Um, people end up having uh, children before marriage and they they don't commit to the parent of the child because they're still waiting for that soulmate because right. they're not convinced yeah. that this person is the soulmate. Mm -hmm. And of all the people who need what marriage can bring and the stability of uh, marriage is community formation. It's people whose communities are already frayed, who mm. lack social infrastructure, who lack social capital. And so in many ways, marriage is exactly what they need and they need the support to stabilize their lives. And the church needs to help them become that community around them so they can do that. Mm. But they've been given this vision from the upper classes and movies, you know, music, all yeah. the tropes that filter down to them that they can't engage in marriage unless it is that romantic soulmate. Yeah. Um, and so what the upper classes can afford, the lower classes can't. And yet it's become the standard for marriages across the board. Hmm. Yeah. So talk, Hannah, talk a little bit more about the positive vision then. Um, we've, we've done a lot of deconstructing, and I think, you know, your, your location, uh, just like where you live and seeing the things you see, mm -hmm. um, is a gift to us, just because, you know, we're, we're able to see things. You just, you go into a new place and you're like, oh, that's different than the way that I normally see it, and yeah. I wonder why, right? Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. And so you're connecting a lot of these dots for, for, for me, uh, which is helpful. Uh, but say a little bit more about the positive vision of marriage then. Like, mm -hmm. if it's not if it's not that my marriage is going to, it's not the Jerry Maguire myth, it's not like you're going to complete me, it's not like all of my needs for belonging are going to be met by the, like these few people, um, then then what is it? You, you said community yeah. formation, you said a couple other things that I'm, I'm wondering if you can unpack a little bit. Like, in your yeah. mind, what's the biblical vision here? Right. So I think the first thing we have to do is understand um, that marriage and family are not the same thing, um, that marriage serves the formation of community. It, it serves um, family growth, but it is not the same thing as family. Mm -hmm. And so um, what marriage is. And marriage is not isolated. It exists in context of a whole host of other marriages that exist in the community. Mm. And so what we need to do is in instead of seeing our homes and marriages turned inward, we have to turn them inside out and see them turning outward. That um, our, the work that we do as couples or in our homes or as families is part of a broader work of community formation um, hmm. in and church, even within the church. And so when you're struggling to not feel connected to your soulmate, it's not just a decision between you and your spouse. It is a decision that has ripple effects. And, and if you pull that thread, it's going to um, echo through, you know, yeah. the, the breadth, the, the fabric of your community. Hmm. And one of the ways that I, I love, we do this in our church where we have these really quirky traditions. And one of them is we sing um, happy anniversary to people who had an anniversary that week. Like we have them That's stand really up in the church yeah. and sing happy anniversary to them to the tune of happy birthday. And basically what we're saying to them in those moments is that the success of your marriage is 
the success of our church. Like mm -hmm. the fact that you are still together and you have spent these years together is something that is meaningful to all of us. It is mm -hmm. not just meaningful to you as a couple. I also think we have to um, remember and understand that, that the vision of family in the scripture is much larger and much more complicated um, than the, the relationships that are found within one home. So we have brothers and sisters, we have mothers and fathers, but we also have aunts and uncles and cousins. And um, we have varying degrees of responsibility to all of these other people outside of our immediate family. And my experience in our church of seeing three to four generations worshiping together mm -hmm. has also allowed me to understand the church as a household, yes. not a nuclear family. Yes. So one of the, the dangers in all the language that we see about the church being family, which I think it actually is, that's a very scriptural portrayal of how we envision um, church life. Mm -hmm. The problem is we say the church is family and then we import nuclear family, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And yes. then we import place of rest yeah. and we import place of consumption. We mm -hmm. import a place where you, um, you know, are served. Right. So yes, you recharge. What, yeah. Right, where you recharge, and that that's completely against the vision of the church as productive, life-giving, a place that brings life to the world. Right, yeah. and I think a vision of household or um, the family operating as a place of product productivity and blessing to the community around it would help us understand better what the church is actually called to do yes. um, and the relationships that we have with each other in the church as brothers and sisters, but brothers yes. and sisters who are working in this kind of family business mm -hmm. where we're all working toward the same goals and the same end to see the world, um, you know, it goes back to the, the creation mandate to, to see life Yes. being brought into the world, spiritual life, you know, the fruitfulness of um, image bearers and people mm. who would look like their father. Um, mm. and, and those kinds, unpacking those kinds of definitions are only possible if you question, what do we mean by family? Yeah, yes. That's and really a nuclear good. family cannot accomplish what the church is called to. Right, yes. so the nuclear family finds its place and context in the larger church family, but in order for that to happen, the church family needs to be a thick network of relationships mm -hmm. that actually have a mission outside of itself. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. What I hear you saying, like a vocation, like we can call it the creation yes. mandate, we can call it the new creation vocation, mm -hmm. uh, which new creation vocation sounds like a 1980s Christian hip-hop band. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. Totally. If we had a time Or machine. maybe one of the albums that one new of these New Creation bands, Vocation. The new create right. a new creation vocation. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, Hannah, I wonder, like... So as if if I'm listening and I am, and I and I want to, I am listening. If I'm listening and I want to begin to live into this new vision or old vision you're casting for us, what are some tangible practices or commitments I can make to begin to explore uh, relocating my nuclear or. Uh, as George W. says, nuclear. Nuclear. Uh, speaking of syllable uh, mm -hmm. issues, mm -hmm. uh, how can I re uh, resituate my nuclear family into the larger family of God? Right. What are some things that we can do? So one thing that my husband and my husband Nathan and I really do is we do press into this sense of family vocation. 
Um, what is it that our family is called to bring to the world around us? Not what is his vocation and how do I support that? Or mm. what is my calling and how can he watch the kids while I go do that? It's that we are operating as a unit and there is something um, bigger than any one of us happening. And that includes our children and our children's gifting and potential and their future is bound up in this um, calling that we have as a family that goes beyond our family success to being a blessing to our neighbors and to the church and to the community around us. People who interact with us should be, um, we should be bringing life to them. We mm. should be bringing life to the world that we exist in and, and exercising, you know, Christ's rule over the spaces that we are. So I think the first thing that's really important for us is understanding that our family is not detached from the rest of community, that our nuclear family exists as a unit. And we, I don't think we can lose the idea of nuclear family. I think that's really important because it tells us who, where our greatest our, our first responsibilities lie. It's about right. who is your sure. nearest neighbor. Yeah. You know, your nuclear family is your nearest neighbor, but it doesn't hmm. end at the boundaries of nuclear families. So, so your calling and vocation as a unit is directed outward, yes. not just to building the relationships within the family. Now you need healthy relationships within your nuclear family, but for the purpose of fulfilling this larger vocation and bringing life to the world and, and seeing Christ's kingdom established. Hmm. And, and that plays into your relationship to your church, how you how you interact with being part of the larger household of God's family. It interacts with how you engage with your community and your neighbors who may or may not be inside your your mm -hmm. faith community. Um, so for us, the most important fundamental thing is where are your eyes pointing? Where is your vocation? And it should be outward, mm -hmm. um, beginning at home but spreading outward, not yeah. stopping at the doors yeah. of your home. Right. Yeah. One of the, I, I was just reminded a few years ago, one of the things we did as a family, my wife and kids and I, our nuclear family, um, is we kind of came up with like some vision and values kind of for our family, you know, that, that we could repeat and talk about with our kids because we realized like, like our shaping as like, what does it mean to be the Sternkey family? wasn't necessarily an intentional thing that was coming from vision, right? This, this kind of vision that you're talking about. It was, it was, you know, we were importing a lot of assumptions and it was causing some, some issues. And so just even writing that out and talking about it with our kids was really, really helpful to say, like, we exist to, to do this, yes. you know? And, and here's some of the practices that we have as a family that allow this to be a place of production and blessing, not just a place of you know rest and, and relaxation and consumption. Yeah, and I think that's important because the the cultural entropy or the Western pull is to, at least the way I feel it is to center your to have a family centered on sort of the well being opportunity and development of my children. Yes. So I become the chauffeur and the coach and the cook, and I'm I'm investing all of my time and energy so that my kid can go to the math bowl and can go to the traveling soccer mm -hmm. team and can right. you know what I mean get the tutor in Japanese at age of seven whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, k kids who grow up intuiting that the the family mission is about them. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. we shouldn't be surprised we're raising narcissists, right? Right. <laughs> Insecure narcissists who yeah. who don't have any right. ability to take risks and to love courageously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hannah, I you've got. I mean, this this is a book. Yeah. I mean, you don't need another <laughs> book, and you don't book. need me to tell you what. To, but yeah. what is, what is the family for? Mm -hmm. Right. 
is what and, you're and t- talking about here. It is. And it's something I think we've had to wrestle with as a family. It's been forced on us because we exist in this um, straddling kind of operating, being trained and operated in one space, like mm-hmm. the middle to upper class vision, Christian vision, but existing in the space where we have to make sense of, well, what yeah. is like what is really the the scriptural categories Mm -hmm. um, because this is not going to translate into this. And and it's been so freeing because um, it also allows us to push back against anything that would be culturally bound because as you, as you consider vocation, you're considering the context in which God has placed you. And so you can say, no, I don't need to have such and such a domestic experience of life. And no, my kids do or don't need to do this, what what the middle's upper class values are telling me they have to participate in. Mm-hmm. Because you are focused more on the resources and the placement um, and the embodied life mm. that you've been given in your context, and you, you discern vocation mm. through that. And one thing that's been so wonderful in teaching our kids this is um, they sac- we all sacrifice for each other's vocations. So I will mm. sacrifice for my children's potential in school, I will mm. sacrifice for their vocation, but they turn around and sacrifice for the calling I have as part of the larger family vocation. Mm-hmm. And so I travel and I speak and I write and they know this is part of what our family is doing. But when I come home and there's a reward attached to my work, they also get part of that reward. Yeah. So last year, um, I completed a speaking season and I said to Nathan, I said, we need to give the kids a certain amount of money because they have sacrificed Hmm. to make this possible. And it's a vocation we're all called to, but the laborer is worthy of his hire. And that includes children. Hmm. Um, So, you know, they love that and they (laughs) weren't expecting that. And that's great. But it's been fascinating to try to apply these broader scriptural categories as a family and um, really develop this idea of vocation. Yeah. Yeah. So even, even shifting the dominant cultural imagination of family as a place of security and safety to mm. family as a, um, a an oikos, right, of household, yeah. a household of mission and, mm-hmm. um, I want to say production. What do I, what do I want to yeah. say? Production. Like, blessing. Uh, uh, mission yeah, and blessing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that we're actually creating something Yes. For others that doesn't exist, rather than consuming yes. something from others so right. we can exist better. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm excited. I want to go be a dad now. Yeah. <laughs> Me I mean, too. I am a dad, but I want, yeah. you know, I got all kinds of ideas. I really want to nail it this afternoon. I'm going to nail when the kids get home from this. <laughs> no. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's, that's really, really helpful. I, I have one more question, uh, Hannah, um, and uh, we can end with this. But, um, uh, what would you say to those who maybe lead communities of faith, pastors, Christian leaders, um, who aren't just sort of participating and leading in their own families, but they're they're also responsible for a group of families? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think uh, the, so oftentimes this this message comes across to people as you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, stop idolizing your family. Yes, stop you know, wanting good things for your kids, 
come to church more. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it it's kind of fraught with difficulty. Yeah. Like what, what would you say to Christian leaders, to pastors who really want to, they, they want to inspire this new vision for the family in their churches, right. but they're unsure well, of like how to start that conversation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and as I saw pastors talking about this idea of the idolatry of family, what I, what I saw what was being revealed was people don't come to church enough because they're at sports activities. Right. And right. so there's like this level of resentment among pastors. <laughs> right. That's, that's like, why we can talk about family idolatry because they do sports on Sunday morning. I need now. a megaphone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. And, and I get it. I mean, you know, Nathan's yeah, a pastor yeah. and we run into similar things about what are you going to prioritize? Sure. But I think you have to have a little empathy to understand that your people are caught in a larger thing that's happening. It's yeah. not just that they're choosing sports over church. You know, they, everything in their life is telling them that's how to be a good parent. Yes. You know, so they're making these decisions. Um, you know, these are not like intentionally willful, like, oh, how can I get my pastor? You know, like, <laughs> right, how right. can I screw up his him. attendance chart? <laughs> um, right. So they're being carried along yeah. by cultural forces. And good. you don't, yell at a drowning person or you don't yell at someone who who doesn't have control over their raft. Um, So I think empathy is really important. But I also think that I believe so strongly that this vision of family flourishing is so much more satisfying and grace filled um, that it relieves so much pressure from people Hmm. that it's actually an invitation to something more holistic and freeing and and it needs to be presented that way and i think we also need to you know as church leaders we need to be willing to question the paradigms in which our churches are operating because a lot of our churches are corporations and not families come on now Mm. you cannot tell people in your pews that there is this vision of family for flourishing and then model and shape them within your church based on marketplace dynamics yeah you have got, wow. as leaders, you've got to develop this vision of household, family relationships for the beauty, uh, for the flourishing, not just of your people, mm. but for the blessing of the world. And that's not going to come through the marketplace. It's not coming through a corporate model. Yes, Hannah. I, I'm telling you, you're blowing my mind. Like, this is an issue. This is a big issue. Yeah. Like, we can use the word family to describe our church, but then as soon as we uh, fire the person who underperforms— you don't fire yeah. your sister, yeah. Right? right? You do fire somebody at Amazon, but you you know at first first Baptist Church of Roanoke. Like if we fire yeah. somebody, like what we're demonstrating is family is this empty signifier mm-hmm. that creates this aesthetic that we want you to like. Right. But when it comes down to it, the social fabric of our community is based upon marketplace ideals and models, not yeah. based upon Scripture and Jesus. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. That is huge, Hannah. Yeah. So how do we lead an organization, a large organ, yeah. a transpersonal organization, yeah. wisely and well, mm. uh, th- and, and allow it to be a family, but, you know, deal with things like, you know, somebody who yeah. is a cottonhead in any muggins. Right. Because I'm thinking about, like, I don't, you know, I don't fire my kids, but they do occasionally underperform. And so do I, as a father. Like, I underperform, so to speak. You know what I mean? That's a marketplace, you know, terminology. But there's a different way of dealing with that in a family. Yes, spankings. Right. Well, there's <laughs> there's conversations, right, yeah, that right. happen. There there's vulnerability and and, uh, and yeah, and, and there's hope because right. you other. you don't. I mean, maybe divorce can separate a couple, 
but bloodlines can never be separate. Like mm-hmm. you cannot not be family. If you, you can if be alienated tra- yes. from your family, yes. but you're always going to be family. And so there's kind of this, um, there is a necessary working out of the problems, but there's also a hope that if you do, you're going to gain something really beautiful. Yes. Like yes. There, there's the hope that this could be restored yeah. and you would be in lifelong, yeah. um, you know, relationship with these people. Yes. Yeah. I think we need that. I think we need the thick practices of the church to know how to not just eliminate problems, but mm-hmm. to, to, to develop and rehabilitate persons mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. a family so that, so that we have actual uh, artifacts of, Oh, so this bigger family I'm a part of that my nuclear family takes position in, it's not just this aspirational ideal, abstract kind of notion, but no, this is how it works out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Hannah, you are provoking us towards that in a really helpful way. Um, So I just thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Such a blessing. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Really, really grateful for the opportunity to talk through these things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, Hannah, uh, thanks so much for being with us. And um, this, there's so much more we could say. We'll have to have you on again. Yeah. Maybe we can unpack a little great. bit more of this stuff uh, at another time. So, How do we connect with you, Hannah, if yeah. we want to? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, obviously. Mm-hmm. I'm giving threads all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a website that used to be a blog, which is sometimesalight.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at sometimesalight. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I have an author page, Hannah Anderson. And if you're on Instagram, I have an Instagram account that I occasionally post <laughs> pictures at, but very rarely. All the kids are on Instagram these days, but uh, yeah. I, I just can't, I can't figure it I out. I can't do one more social media yeah, yeah, platform. I, I'll get my MySpace page up next week. Good, yeah. <laughs> next good. week, I'll get yeah, it up. Yeah, okay, right. uh, thanks, Hannah. It's Thank been, you. It's been great. Yeah, talk to you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.